This is the Green Street News, the environmental health radio show and podcast. Patty and Doug Wood and our worldwide network of experts with your weekly update on what in the world is happening and how it can impact your life. Welcome back. The Monsanto Company, developer of the pesticide glyphosate, known to many consumers as Roundup, has a long history of manufacturing and selling products that have turned out to be really harmful. The company is also known for its aggressive marketing and punitive legal actions. On today's show, we'll hear from a reporter who got inside the company, found out what was going on, and eventually blew the whistle on Monsanto. That story and Patty with the headlines all coming up on this edition of Green Street News. Stay with us. So, Patty, I hear there's trouble with those little laundry pods. What's going on with that? Yeah. So, an article in the Washington Post written by Allison Chu, and it is entitled, Does the Film Around Detergent Pods Really Biodegrade? A Debate is Raging. I I knew this was not good. So, easy-to-use detergent pods have become ubiquitous in American homes, containing just the right combination and amount of cleaning agents to, quote, leave clothes fresh and dishes sparkling, end quote. But now a debate is raging over whether they may contribute to the growing plastic pollution problem that threatens human health and the environment. So an eco-friendly company that sells cleaning products and advocacy groups petitioned the EPA on Tuesday to take action against the use of the plastic film that surrounds the pods, arguing that the material does not break down in water as advertised. The petition urges the agency to require health and environmental safety tests for polyvinyl alcohol, also known as PVA or PVOH, which encases the pods. The petition calls on the EPA to remove the compound from its safer choice and safer chemical ingredients lists until the tests are conducted and PVA is proved safe. Blueland, a company which sells a dry-form laundry detergent tablet, has spearheaded the effort to subject pods to greater federal scrutiny. Its actions have angered major players within the cleaning products industry, including a trade association and the manufacturer of the film used in detergent pods. Polyvinyl alcohol is a polymer, so by definition, it is a plastic. It's a synthetic petroleum-based plastic, said Blueland co-founder Sanda Yu. She added that she and others at the New York City-based company view the popular pods and newer laundry detergent sheets that use PVA as arguably worse than straws. Quote, at least with a straw, you can look at it and know like, okay, this is trash. I should put this in the trash can, she said. These pods and sheets are plastics that are designed to go down our drains and into our water systems that ultimately empty out into the natural environment. Asked for comment, an EPA spokesperson said the agency, quote, will review the petition and respond accordingly, end quote. Yeah, so they're going to take their time and do all their testing. I mean, it's plastic. Of course it's plastic. You know, I bought a quote-unquote environmentally friendly laundry detergent when we were away on vacation, and it came in these little pods, even though it was a you know, a brand name that that is uh, known for its environmental friendliness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Whatever, but we didn't use them. Just a little. (laughs) Remember, I had to go out and get another kind because I I refused to use it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. What else you got? 
Okay, well, this is something that has come up, you know, over and over over the past few years, but this is an article written in Environmental Health News by Grace Van Dielen, and the title is, A New Analysis Shows a Crisis of Male Reproductive Health. You know, for years, scientists across the world have gathered evidence showing declines in sperm quality. In fact, we had one of the major researchers, Shanna Swan from Mount Sinai, uh, right here in New York City on our show. But in a new analysis, researchers at Mount Sinai Medical Center, the University of Copenhagen, and the Hebrew University of Jerusalem found that sperm count globally dropped by more than half between 1973 and 2018 and that the decline is accelerating. The findings raise concerns that an increasing number of people will need assistance to reproduce, as well as concerns about the overall health of human society since low sperm count is linked to higher rates of some diseases. And while scientists are still trying to tease out the reasons for the drop, chemical exposures, especially pesticides, are a likely factor, and even climate change may play a role. So, you know, we have evidence, really pretty clear evidence, that there is a crisis in male reproduction. So what are the reasons for it? That's what, you know, these guys are trying to find out. Yeah, so, sure. you know, Shanna Swan, who is the leading reproductive epidemiologist at Mount Sinai, says that when a man's sperm count drops below about 45 million per milliliter, his ability to cause a pregnancy starts dropping dramatically. So, you know, she says the results could mean that in the coming decades, large swaths of the global population of men could be subfertile or infertile and could require assistance, you know, in reproduction techniques. And there are some ones that I've never heard of, like, well, I've heard of in vitro fertilization, hormone treatment, or a technique called intracytoplasmic sperm injection, or ICSI, in which sperm are directly injected into the egg. This is a new technique for couples with, you know, dealing with infertility. Okay, so one of the things that we've talked about uh, on the show before is the relationship between radio frequency radiation and decreased sperm mobility and other things. Yeah. Um, and we've been telling guys not to keep their phones in their pants. It's right, in their one, front pockets. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. You're, these, you know, consistent evidence from, from many, many different research centers, epidemiological studies in vitro, laboratory, and so on and so on, shows that the radio frequency radiation exposure from wireless devices primarily phones here. We're just sure. talking about phones right. that men keep in their front pockets. But that wireless, this radio frequency radiation is associated does that with look men's like, sperm health. Does that look like the main culprit? Or is it... It may or not is, be the main culprit, but it certainly is contributing. I mean, what are you doing? You're holding a cell phone, you know, right on your pelvis, right? I mean, it's like it couldn't, it can't get any closer. Yeah can't get any closer. So you also have this mounting body of evidence showing that cell phone radiation harms sperm and poses a risk to men's health. Yeah, we've t we talked about that. Is it endocrine disrupting chemicals that are causing this problem? There are also endocrine disrupting chemicals that are problematic. Sure, we're, we're absolutely. And the problem is that endocrine disrupting chemicals are in so many things we're exposed to today. I mean, from plastics to pesticides to cleaning products and personal care products, etc. You know, and even diet. I mean, it's hard to separate your diet from chemical exposures now yeah. because pesticide residues linger on so much of the food that we're eating and also plasticizing chemicals that are used for packaging food yeah. are 
you know, are leaching into the food. So that's that's really big. But there's an interesting one about smoking, too. For example, when a man smokes a known endocrine disrupting activity, he lowers his sperm count by about 20 percent. But listen to this. When a male is born to a woman who smokes, his sperm count is reduced by 50 percent. If your mother smokes, your sperm count can be reduced by 50%. And those effects may last for generations before subsequent children and grandchildren return to normal sperm counts Mm. again. That is something that I don't think is widely known to the public. No, I'm sure it's not. That is not widely known. One more reason not to stick a cigarette in your mouth. Okay. What else you got today? Well, the last thing that we have here is actually related to our guest today. Um, And this is an article that was also written for Environmental Health News by Elizabeth Gribkoff. The title is Glyphosate Exposure is Linked to Lower Birth Weights for Babies. And I'm just going to read the first little bit of it. Glyphosate exposure during pregnancy is linked to lower birth weights for babies, according to a new study. Lower birth weights are associated with multiple health problems later in life, from diabetes to heart problems. In this study published earlier this year in Environmental Health, the research team also found that mothers with high-risk pregnancies who had higher glyphosate levels in their urine during the first trimester were also more likely to have babies admitted to the neonatal intensive care units, or NICUs. Although the study looked at a limited number of pregnant people, it adds to a small but growing body of evidence linking the most commonly used weed killer in the world to potential pregnancy harms. Low birth weight is a real problem for, you know, and it, it seems, I remember when we were shooting a documentary, I don't know, 10 years ago, when we mm. were talking to Buzzy Joette mm-hmm. about um, pesticides and children, and she was showing, showing the effect of it on brain development. Right. And it was really, right. you know. But, but low birth weight contributes to breathing problems in newborns, difficulty feeding, and even sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. You know, and it can also have a long-term effect on health and development. Virtually all major chronic diseases suffered in adulthood can be linked to being smaller at birth. You know, we used to associate pesticide exposure with people who lived in areas where a lot of agriculture was going mm-hmm. on, fam- and, and, families that lived, yeah, and, you know, and on the edge And that association of, is very strong. Uh, of course very it is. Very strong, But right. now we've got pesticide residues in practically everything that you eat. Yeah so that everybody's being exposed. Well, that's because most of what we eat is made from those four basic things that are genetically modified crops. And genetically modified crops are literally engineered to withstand huge pesticide applications. Yeah. I mean, way more than you would normally be able to, to use without damaging the crop itself. Sure. But you see, when these are genetically modified crops, they can withstand those pesticide applications without being harmed. So all these things that are made with wheat and soy and corn, which are like three staples for use in processed foods and you know practically everything you buy on the inner aisles in a grocery store, huh, just, look at the, just look at the label. If you don't see wheat, corn, or soy, I'd be surprised. So don't shop in the inside aisles of a grocery store? Well, that's, yeah, that's something that people have been talking about for a long time. Don't shop on the inside aisles of grocery stores. Shop around the outside where you have produce and meat and dairy. But of course, I say buy organic produce, organic meat, organic dairy. Yeah. All right, great. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome.
Every day, for most of us three times a day, we eat. We fill up the tank with fuel to keep us going. And that single act of choosing what we put into our bodies has incredible consequences, not only for us personally and our health, but for society, the planet, and even for the future of life itself. In case you think I'm overstating it a little, consider this. Unless you are extremely careful about what you eat today, you will probably ingest a chemical that has become so widespread in the world that it's virtually impossible to avoid. A chemical that the manufacturer and the government both know harms the planet, creates terrible problems for farmers, is implicated in the drastic reduction of bees and other pollinators, and, oh yes, has been proven to cause cancer. It's a chemical that scientists are linking to autism and other conditions, but you can still buy it by the gallon at Home Depot or any hardware or garden store. Despite all the evidence of harm and the many years it has been allowed to sit on store shelves, it has still not been banned by the EPA. This is a story of a reporter who dared tell the truth about the company and the chemical. I always knew I wanted to be a journalist. You know, I grew up in the Watergate era. My parents always had the Watergate hearings on the television, and I was really intrigued. And as I got older, I learned about Woodward and Bernstein, and I thought, I want to be a journalist. You know, I want to be a reporter. One of those people who finds out really important information and shares it with others. That's Carrie Gillum, journalist and author. As a correspondent for the international news organization Reuters, Carrie investigated stories in the world of banking, real estate, transportation, and other major industries. And then one day, she was asked to cover the agriculture industry. When I was assigned by Reuters to start covering the big business of, of agriculture, I did think sort of ho-hum. You know, I'd been covering the world of big banking, and uh, I wasn't too sure that, you know, throwing on mud boots and blue jeans and hanging out with farmers and feeding chemical companies would be that interesting. But I learned very quickly that, yes, I mean, the agricultural industry is indeed one of the most, if not the most, important industries. We all are directly impacted by the practices, policies, and products that go into farming uh, and to create our food and to feed the livestock that, that also makes up our meal plan for a lot of us. And it also affects the environment, you know, global warming and climate change, the health of our soil and our air and our water and, and biodiversity, our different species are all directly impacted in a certain uh, respect by the way we grow food. Carrie Gillum relocated to Kansas City in the heart of the food production world and soon found herself talking with one of the largest companies in the agriculture business, a company located not far away in St. Louis called Monsanto. Monsanto was definitely part of my assigned beat. Uh, you know, with food and farming, agricultural commodities, futures trading, um, and cash trading and commodities as well. So they moved me to Kansas City so I could be right here in the middle of, you know, the heartland. And uh, Monsanto's just up the road in St. Louis. And so, yeah, I started spending a lot of time with Monsanto officials there, and uh, they wanted to spend a lot of time with me. They wanted to influence the coverage at Reuters. And you know, to teach me all about their products, and I got to know them pretty well. When I started covering the industry in 1998, Monsanto had just introduced genetically engineered crops. They were rolling out these new types of um, soybeans and cotton and 
uh, corn and canola and other crops that were engineered to be tolerant to a chemical called glyphosate. Glyphosate's the active ingredient in Roundup herbicide and other names, other brands that use glyphosate. And uh, Monsanto had introduced glyphosate to the world in 1974. It was a popular weed killer, popular herbicide, supposed to be very safe. But the patent was expiring on glyphosate in the year 2000, and Monsanto brilliantly found a way to sort of hold on to market share and increase demand at the same time by creating crops that would tolerate glyphosate. Monsanto was one of the first companies to invest in the new technology of gene splicing, introducing new genes into living things to alter their characteristics. In 1987, Monsanto became the first company to field test new versions of plants that had been genetically modified. Monsanto was looking to develop plants that could tolerate heavy applications of its most successful pesticide product, glyphosate. If they succeeded, farmers could plant a new type of genetically modified seed, then spray their fields with the pesticide without doing any harm to the plants. But there was a problem. While all the gene splicing was going on, laboratory tests were showing that the pesticide itself was causing lab animals to develop cancer. There was a study, Monsanto turned it in for registration purposes. It looked at you know, mice who had been dosed with glyphosate against a control group of mice, and uh, they, researchers looked at it and said, wow, looks like glyphosate might cause cancer because all you know, these mice who are being dosed with glyphosate are developing these rare tumors and the ones who are not dosed are not developing these rare tumors. And the EPA scientists said, this looks like it can be oncogenic, like this could cause cancer, and we need to register it as such. And Monsanto said, absolutely not. You, you're not looking at it correctly. You, you don't know how to assess the study properly. Let us tell you how to do it. And you see this whole, this went on for like three or four years, the correspondence back and forth and back and forth. And the EPA brought in scientific advisors and they said, yes, make Monsanto redo the study then. And Monsanto said, no, we're not going to redo the study. And um, eventually the higher up officials overruled their own scientists within the EPA and sided with Monsanto. The reason that this rose to prominence, that glyphosate rose to sort of the public consciousness as it did, is because the introduction of genetically engineered crops made the use of glyphosate skyrocket. Farmers loved it and said, oh, this is the greatest thing, and, and that was what they transitioned all of their cropping systems to, were these genetically engineered crops that spread around the world. Glyphosate use skyrocketed, so scientists around the world started saying, hmm, you know, there's this use of this chemical that is just growing exponentially, and we don't really know how it affects people and plants, and we should study that. And so they did, and then they started finding problems, and then reporters started writing about the published studies showing the problems, and, you know, this sort of, this is how it evolves, how information comes to light. But Monsanto didn't like the news that was coming out about its product, which it had spent so much time and money developing. The company swung into action, developing a plan to make sure that any reports of the dangers of its product were discredited, and that damaging information was kept quiet by government regulators. My sort of realization and and what I find so stunning is there is no debate about how the company deceived the public for 40 years. We have been able to obtain, you know, internal records, and I write about this, you know, I've written about this quite extensively, 
internal records from the company as well as from regulatory agencies that show just a vast intentional deception upon the public about the science surrounding this chemical and the politics about protecting it and how the regulators worked with this company to hide the science and to protect the profits of the company rather than the public. The effort by Monsanto to control or discredit bad news about its products didn't start with glyphosate. The company had been working on its playbook for years, and its impact was felt not only by the scientists doing the research, but also by any reporters who dared to report about studies that were being done. The first big problem that they had with my writing was not even around genetically engineered crops. It was around their RBGH milk. Um, the hormones that they were providing for uh, dairy farmers to give to their cows to increase their milk production. And there was evidence that it was, you know, harmful to the uh, dairy cows and that maybe it wasn't the greatest thing and they would develop infections and need antibiotics and then you would have traces in the milk. And it just, you know, maybe, maybe not the greatest thing. There was a lot of controversy about it and I wrote about the controversy and they didn't like that. And different court cases over genetically engineered alfalfa, you know, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really super challenging the narrative. I was just writing about what was going on and evolving science and, and changes that we were seeing in soil health that certain scientists were reporting and Monsanto didn't like it. What we learned in documents that came out a couple of years ago uh, that I was one of the people that they targeted uh, to try to discredit and um, harass and knock out of the industry. They called me at home, they harassed me, they called my editor constantly if they didn't like a story. They, uh, you know, it, the pressure ramped up and the harassment ramped up um, pretty extensively. There were a couple of front groups that were being funded by Monsanto, we learned, and the front groups would write articles about Carrie Gillum and how she's doing such a terrible job at Reuters. But neither the scientists nor Carrie Gillum were deterred from trying to alert the public to what was known about the health risks and environmental damage being caused by glyphosate. I'm a little nerdy about science. I became that way, I guess. And so if you delve into the science and you get to know different scientists and um, that world, there is ample evidence of an array of harmful impacts of glyphosate. Internal documents in the EPA archives, you know, I've spent oodles of time going through those archives. I've sued the EPA twice to force them to turn over records within their files um, about the handling of this. There have been decades of warning signs, red flags about the harms of this chemical. And people talk about cancer, and cancer is very definitely non-Hodgkin lymphoma and other issues, acute myeloid leukemia show associations, but there are reproductive consequences that we're seeing in the science, not only to humans, but in livestock. Because even if you're not out there spraying Roundup or spraying glyphosate, you're not a farm worker, you don't spray it on your garden, you're consuming glyphosate in almost every meal that you eat. In the 90s, there were roughly 40 million pounds of glyphosate used um, annually in the United States. Now there's like 300 million pounds used annually. It has become ubiquitous. And because it is so widely used, the most widely used weed killer in the world, it gets a lot of scrutiny. But what about government regulators? If the science was showing so clearly that the product was dangerous, 
Why wasn't the government taking action to get it off store shelves? They had a friend inside the EPA, and he oversaw the carcinogenicity assessments for glyphosate. And uh, you see that Monsanto considered him a friend. And uh, after he left the agency and after he put out a report saying Monsanto's glyphosate does not cause cancer, he magically landed employment in the chemical industry as a consultant. And Monsanto's infiltration of government agencies apparently didn't stop at the water's edge. Thailand was looking to ban glyphosate. They announced they were going to ban it. It was scheduled to go into effect December 1st. There was a woman working in the U.S. government, Bear, who bought Monsanto, reached out to and asked for help. And she got help. She gave help. The Thailand ban went away. And she went to work for Bear, got a job at Bear. What the science is showing is that overuse of glyphosate is so depleting the health of the uh, microbial uh, community in the soil that that in turn actually uh, weakens a plant's ability to grow and be healthy and reproduce. One of the great promises of genetic engineering was that it would enable us to feed the world, that we could grow more food because pests would no longer be a problem. But it hasn't turned out that way. It's not feeding the world. It's not increasing productivity. It's doing more harm than good by increasing pesticide loads um, in the diet. There are a num- number of studies from that. And, and if you really delve down into it, uh, people, and, and you look at the sort of supply chain globally, and you look at where we have food insecurity and scarcity, it's not because you don't have GMO crops and pesticides. It's because you have economic or political instability you don't have transportation and storage and distribution and yes it's all of those much bigger issues not only have agricultural yields failed to increase with genetically modified foods but the unanticipated damage to nature has been significant it's the hubris of man that we know better than nature that we can improve on what nature has developed over time that almost always lands us in trouble People don't care about monarch butterflies, but there's been a a great decrease in that population of that sort of iconic insect, and that's directly tied to glyphosate, which uh, the overuse of glyphosate has wiped out a lot of the milkweed um, and plants that, that the young monarchs need. And so you've seen that decline right there, and it's just sort of emblematic of what's happening. We're seeing a lot of bee die-offs, um, honeybees and things like that. And you're finding that the Food and Drug Administration is finding glyphosate residues in honey because bees are being so exposed to this. You have neonicotinoids, insecticides, that are infecting very important insects that are needed to keep us in balance. So, you know, if you look at the bird and the insect population, and different studies have come out recently about this, but you're seeing very dramatic declines in the populations of birds and insects, 20 to 30 percent. We're, we're losing these precious parts uh, of our planet, and it doesn't bode well for the health of the rest of us. This is not sustainable. We cannot stay on a pesticide chemical driven food production system indefinitely. It just, Mother Nature isn't gonna <laughs> go along with it. Carrie Gillum is an American investigative journalist and author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science, which won the coveted Rachel Carson Book Award from the Society of Environmental Journalists. Carrie's latest book, a legal thriller titled The Monsanto Papers, 
Deadly Secrets, Corporate Corruption, and One Man's Search for Justice was released in March of last year. Both books are available at your local bookstore or at carrygillam.com. That's C-A-R-E-Y-G-I-L-L-A-M.com. This interview was originally conducted a few years ago, just as Monsanto was being acquired by the Bayer Corporation, which has agreed to pay $10 billion to resolve an estimated 120,000 lawsuits alleging its pesticide Roundup caused non-Hodgkin lymphoma. That's going to do it for this edition of Green Street News. Thanks for listening.